listening to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. <laughs> GGTMC, we are live, we are on the air, we are rocking and rolling with coffee and notes and films and all kinds of shit going on. Yeah, Facebook He's Conway, I'm stomping Tom. <laughs> Facebook groups getting shut down, all kinds of craziness going on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so uh, we are back. This week we are reviewing a little double douche, a little double douche action this week, uh, Lady Snowblood. And Lady Snowbud, Lady uh, Snowbud, Lady Snowbud's uh, <laughs> love song of vengeance. So, um, that is the features we're reviewing. These are this is the uh, Arrow Blu-ray uh, double film set, steel book, little steel book action. Great looking set. I love the steel books. Um, so we're going to talk about those today. We don't really have a whole lot else to go over. I don't think. Uh, I'm sure at this point, by the time we get done uh, talking about this brief little intro here, Kelly has probably bought six more Blu-rays. So uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> those are on our Facebook group. No, we were talking about. We love you, Kelly. It's this, like a little um, shout out to you, buddy. Who was it? Bob Costas used to say about Jordan. You cannot. No, was it Bob Costas? I want to say it was, but no, I think it's Dan Patrick. You can't stop well, him. You can only hope. You can to only hope to contain him. Yeah, and you can't even contain Kelly, man. <laughs> You know, he he's become the uh, the measuring stick <laughs> for consumption of blues. I, I had, I think, I said I had fifty Blu-rays in my shopping cart at one point <laughs> in Amazon on Black Friday. I said this is going to be a, a a Kelly Baird esque <laughs> level of uh, of consuming here. So <clears throat> yes, <clears throat> it's yes. incredible, man. <laughs> yeah, I live vicariously through him. So I'm gl- I love that he posts all that stuff because. Like I say, it's porn for <laughs> yeah, it's porn for me. People like us, yeah. <laughs> so here's to you, I'm drinking coffee. So what have you been watching, Large William? Uh, not much. I didn't get as much. To, you know, as always, we never get quite as much in as we we want to. But I did watch a few things. It was kind of a diverse list. Um, I watched the making of Lawrence of Arabia. Now, I think the one that's on the Blu-ray, which I got for my birthday for my wife, which was awesome. I wasn't expecting it. Um. I think the one that's on the Blu-ray isn't the one that everyone says is really good. There's just two making ofs. Mm-hmm. Um, this one didn't feel like it was as good as Higgins uh, and a few others had had um, repped for. But, you know, it was okay. It was still interesting. Uh, you know, if film that big <clears throat> and of its time, there's bound to be fascinating stories. So uh, it was interesting. Uh, it was in standard definition, but, you know, because it was ported over, which is common practice. Yeah, that might um, that might be the. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what's on those discs completely. So let me know if you see the other one if it's better. So. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will. But this one was solid. You know, like six and a half, seven. But yeah. um, 
then I decided to rewatch Paprika, the Satoshi Kon film. I'd seen Paprika uh, on DVD, I want to say it was. It was at a friend's house. It was like a, you know, a party. So, I mean, I, I'd seen it, but I think it deserved another watch. I got the blue a long time ago. Actually, probably last Dark Friday. Uh, it looks fantastic. <clears throat> it's, um, I don't think it's as good as Perfect Blue. You know, you and I aren't really anime guys, but but it is very cool. You know, uh, when you're dealing with dreams and things like that, it's it has an allure for me. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a good one. It's worth checking out on Blue for sure. Um, then I decided to keep the Japanese train rolling and uh, decided to watch one that Loaf had been repping pretty hard for. And I heard very good things for. A little bit of cram. It's on Netflix Instant. Jiro Dreams of Sushi. <clears throat> so, nice. Very good documentary. Have you seen it? Mm. Not yet. No, I have not. You definitely have to see it before the year end. I was very um, pleased with it. I thought it was quite good. Um, the aesthetic, uh, the style choices the director uses really complement the spirit of, of sushi and of kind of minimalism. A bit, you know, it's going to sound maybe a bit douchey, but of even sort of Japanese, um, it, it has sort of a, a classy minimalism that is sort of inherently Japanese in some ways, if that makes any sense. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, no, I'll check it out at some point. I mean, I know everything about it, just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's good, man. Um, then I watched Chim. Well, this was one from last week, but I forgot to mention Chimpanzee, which is a Disney film. I think Disney Nature or something like that. Oh yeah, those nature films they make. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was pretty good, but I really the the the, uh, narration really bothers me. Um, it's, it's for kids, so I, it shouldn't really bother me, but it does. I, I would almost rather they treated them like, um, you know, when Lauren Green or Richard Attenborough narrates, you know. Mm-hmm. But this is like, it's Tim Allen, I think. And, you know, he'll be narrating, but he's narrating as the, the monkey. And he'll be like, oh, hi, Dad, whoa! And then he'll fall from a tree. Oh, okay, so it's like it's the, what, that type of stuff, okay. Yeah, which is like, oh... This is annoying, but still some pretty fantastic stuff. I mean, they captured some tremendous stuff in the films with the chimps, so worth a watch. Uh, then it was William's Choice. We watched Merry Christmas, Thomas, which is um, new to Netflix Instant. It's not a new Thomas film, per se. It's what they, they I've seen. They've, they've done a lot with Thomas stuff, which is whether it's Halloween, Christmas, uh, any sort of loose, um, what's, uh, what is, as our good friend Higgins says, any tenuous link in between, um, they take sort of a thematic thing with Thomas stuff and they put it together as a quote-unquote film. Mm-hmm. So it's three or four different stories, right? So it's three or four different little uh, ten-minute stories about Thomas and Christmas and stuff. wasn't bad. I was hoping for a new feature like Thomas, which I think Magic Mountain or Misty Mountain is the new one, but whatever. Um, then finally, I finished my week off outside of the two films for the show with a rewatch uh, of uh, a film that I... Dear friends over at Silver and Gold reviewed recently. I hadn't seen it in years since VHS, so I figured it was high time because it was on instant. And that is, of course, uh, Van Damme's Hard Target. Uh, so, yes. <clears throat> yeah, this is fantastic. It holds up great. It's, um, you know, uh, people, I think, were quick to kind of color John Woo's foray into Hollywood as a resounding failure. But he made a decent amount of good films. Even Choi Hawk, I mean, they obviously didn't scale the heights and, and 
break new ground like they did in Hong Kong. But both those guys, and Ringo Lamb as well, made some very entertaining genre fare when they were here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Including some high-budget stuff. So I think we're always too quick to say failure. But that's they, not the case. And this is fucking amazing. I mean, it's the greatest cinematic mullet of all time. <laughs> they both worked with Jean-Claude too, didn't they? Yeah, I yeah. think all three did. Yeah, so because so, didn't Chuck do yeah, double did, team, yeah. double team with Van Damme. Ringo Lamb did a, bu- a few Van Damme films. I think including did you Death Warrant. I can't remember, but he did a few. And I don't then, think he did uh, Death Warrant. I think Death Warrant was one of the American ones. But I think he did like Maximum Risk. Maybe maybe that was yeah. yeah that might have been Lamb. I don't know. I don't don't have it in front of me. So and then of course uh, Hard Target with uh, Woo, but which is fantastic. Like. You know, some people said Swayze's mullet's better, and I guess it comes down to what you like, feathered or wet, and I prefer the wet mullet. Um, I don't think this is a better film than Roadhouse, though. Roadhouse is definitely a superior film, in my eyes. What are your, what are your feelings? Do you like Hard Target better or, um, or Roadhouse better? Well, this episode's called The Double Deuce. Uh, I think you know where yeah. I stand. Well, I mean, Roadhouse is a special <laughs> film. I mean, it's for me, Roadhouse is almost like... <laughs> It's almost like the most ridiculous and the most awesome 80s action thing <laughs> that's ever been Because it's just, you know, we talked about it when we reviewed it. It's just so ridiculous in so many ways, but so awesome, too. I don't even know if it's explainable. But Hard Target is really great. and Yeah. And I'm glad that they uh, reviewed it like it is, which it is ridiculous. It is, you know, it's, it's, it's like a comment like, uh, like okay, so... Recently, uh, one of our good friends, Carl Bresden, he created a group called the Fist of B-List Group on Facebook. And one of the great statements he made has nothing to do with Hard Target, but it does have a continuous link, so to speak, to Jean-Claude Van Damme with Bolo Young. And that he said, you know, made a statement about uh, Bolo rubbing his imaginary beard like he did in that film, we, but Breathing Fire, I believe it was. Yeah, and uh, he said that he's contemplating how many more jackets he's going to have to take off and throw to the ground before he starts a fight. You know? <laughs> that statement right there is what Roadhouse is to me. It's just the yeah. ridiculousness of that. So you know, I mean, it might sound crazy, but I just Roadhouse is special. But man, Hard Target is it, it was that it? it's early '90s, right? So that's very close, but. It's a really great film. I mean, we've had it on our roadmap forever to cover, and now we'll probably push it a little bit more because they just covered it recently, but. Um, I even thought about covering the John Woo cut just to try to switch things up a little bit, but really the cut that's out there is is perfectly fine. Roadhouse, I mean, Hard Target is perfectly fine action movie. Maybe one of Van Damme. It's easily top five Van Damme. For me as well, yes. <clears throat> and actually probably number one, uh, American John Woo. Mm, maybe. Maybe. It's in the conversation. Yep. Good stuff, good stuff. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad I got your opinion. Like, I wondered as soon as... Uh, Someone mentioned the mullets, and I was, I wonder what Sammy likes better as far as uh, films. So, yeah, good. I'm, I'm with you too, man. Roadhouse is fantastic. But uh, what what have you been getting into this week? I haven't really watched a whole lot this week. Been very busy. It's the holiday week. Uh, you would think I'd have free time, but it, as you, those of you who know who have children, when the holidays are around, that just means more playtime. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of, you know, a lot of cooking, a lot of imaginary cooking, a lot of imaginary serving, a lot of uh, hide and seek. Uh, a lot of play karaoke, grounds, a lot of karaoke, <laughs> a lot of impressions of Wreck It Ralph, <laughs> stuff like that. You know the stuff you do. You know where you run around the house and act like a fool. Stuff that you, if you ever were filmed doing, you'd be twenty years. You'd be like, did I really do that shit? <laughs> you get the chills. Oh, I'm embarrassed. You make a fool of yourself. But yeah. it's all in the name of well, yeah, I mean, fun for the kids. There's no, there's no tougher audience than your children, and and you'll oh, yeah. and you will throw your back out trying to entertain mm-hmm. them. 
And uh, so it's been a lot of that and uh, a lot of good times, a lot of shopping, things like that. But I managed to squeeze one film in uh, last week, and that was uh, the uh, Disney film John Carter, which I told you I had on DVR, Ooh. so I'll check that out. And this is this is a perfectly fine blockbuster type movie. Uh, yeah, it's probably like a six, a six and a half to me. But it's it's not it's not great, but it's not it's not nearly as bad as everybody kind of made it out to be. I tell you though, Taylor Kitsch, who I do like, I think he's better in small doses. I just don't think he can really hold a film. Um, I know the. No, tra- I, I would agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah, I just don't, and I haven't seen something like Battleship yet or something <clears> like that. And that's not to say that I'm <clears throat> pursuing it, but I imagine I probably will. Like all these films, I end up seeing them somehow, some way because they end up coming on like a cable channel or. Something like that, and you know, but you know these big special effects movies. I just sometimes get in the mood for them, so I'll watch them. Um, this one is is okay, but it. I don't know. It just you know it does feel a little little too much CGI. It's, it's one of those things where it's a fine line, right? It's just a little too much. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Strong's playing a bad guy again, so it's you know got that. And oh, are you serious <laughs> yeah, again? Again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and he's in it again playing a bad guy and stuff some of the acting's pretty good in the film um but it's really it's really centered on Taylor Kish and I think that because the film is so centered on him uh it's kind of a, a letdown I think that you know there's so many other good actors in it. James Purifoy who played Solomon Kane. there's uh a Kyrian Hines who he's been on a lot of, he's been like Rome and stuff like that shows like that does Purefoy wear um, skinny jeans and pointy toe shoes in this one? <laughs> no. No. He saves that for whatever premiere he shows up at. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a fucking hipster. Yeah. <laughs> that fucking guy. <laughs> oh, for, for those of you who remember, we were at the Solomon Kane uh, Midnight Madness and we saw Purefoy there. <laughs> he was rocking his eyes out with those shoes, man. Both she asked trauma. Yeah. What do you think fucking guy? I thought he was like Lady Snowblood. He had weapons in his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, I think he might have had a scarf on too, if I'm not mistaken. He did. He had one of those uh like Bedouin <laughs> scarves that uh some some hipsters have been known to wear. Easily he's one of those kind of guys that dressing like that. <laughs> You know he's a fucking actor. He yeah. walks into the room, you know? It's like, cause no person dresses like that. No, <laughs> These combos he was rocking. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, great. But, uh, so, you know, it, it has some good acting in it. The lead female, she's very attractive. Uh, so she's on True Blood sometimes, I think. Oh, uh, I wonder who it is. What colors her hair? Uh, very dark. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Uh, I know there's a scene in True Blood, I think, where there's some sex going on. She turns into, like, a ball-headed vampire. A bald headed vampire. <laughs> so, I'll have to look it up. I'm going to look it up while we're yeah. while we went Yeah, but she's she's an attractive lady, and uh, there's some good stuff in it. And uh, you know, and there's some stuff for the kids and stuff, but uh, like a little dog like character and stuff. So, because it is a Disney film, it just feels it feels disjointed. It feels like it's a little lost, but it's not nearly as bad as everybody made it out to be. So, mm. there's that, and that's all I really watched. I haven't really watched. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've kind of checked out. I was going to watch Expendables 2. Uh, I haven't got to it yet, so I'm hoping I'll watch that pretty soon. i got a couple other things lined up, so we'll see. We'll see. I mean, uh, I'm on vacation this whole week coming. Um, 
which sounds like you know uh i got a lot of free time but no free time <laughs> less free time yeah and vacation now means less free time so you know like i say i'll be doing some more cooking and some more cleaning and some, um, i gotta i gotta find some way to rope this uh son of mine into this this fake cleaning this fake housekeeping stuff you know <laughs> that he that he's kind of into right now because he just likes yeah. to move stuff around like the vacuum cleaner stuff i gotta figure out a way to make him do that for real <laughs> gotta figure a way to exploit that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be like Roger Corman, find a way to, you know, make a buck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is what we've been watching. We're gonna take a short break, come back and talk about Lady Snowblood, which I don't think I said what the years were, but they're seventy three and seventy four consecutively uh very close together. So we'll be back right after this. In a world that has a country called England. Three cinephiles battle weekly against the onslaught of movie releases. They review, dissect, and discuss until each is defeated. Jordan is the host. Ian is the sweary one. And Noel is the grandpa. And together they are the 35mm heroes. Dig it, bitches. Woke up this morning, happy as to be. Looked out my window, and what did I see? I'm coming up my sidewalk, just as plain as day. Well, here come trouble that I never thought I'd see when you went away. Hello, trouble. Come on in You talk about heartaches Where in the world you been I ain't had the miseries Yeah, motherfucker, little buck this morning Fuck yeah <laughs> Hello, trouble Good stuff <laughs> Yeah <clears throat> little, uh, If you go through those, you members of the uh, Facebook group uh, I, was, I posted some Thanksgiving gifts this year around <laughs> For for our American listeners, which uh, amazing for I'm, every listener, yeah, for, I immediately regretted once I put them up there, of course. But you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm trying to coffee and a cheeseburger, turning into an old man. I drink coffee with my meals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that the other day. I was like, when did I start drinking coffee when I eat? Oh, I can't. I can't hang with you on that one, bro. Oh, trust me, bro. You still got a few years yeah. to go. You'll yeah. get there. <laughs> Yeah, you're younger than me, man. (laughs) Like six years there. Trust me, it's six years. A lot of things can change in six years. Both our pisses are going to be dark and whore in 10 years. Like, these guys pouring beer out in here? What are they doing? (laughs) Fuck, man, these guys are having dark lager. Yeah. (laughs) Like a fucking Guinness came out of there. Oh. (laughs) All right, so our first film of the day is uh, Lady Snowblood from 73. Uh, also known as, uh, let's see if I can get this right, Shuroyuki Hime, maybe? Shuroyuki Hime? Sounds good enough, enough for, a, for a guy, Gene. <laughs> yeah, for an idiot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, basic plot synopsis for this one is, a young girl is born and raised to be an instrument of revenge, which is a pretty good basic plot synopsis because that's what this is. So this film is really rather infamous around cult, cult film circles and stuff, and we've held off on it really for... I don't know, ages, really, because a lot of the podcasts we listened to covered it back in the day. Uh, we have always kind of talked about maybe covering it. And, of course, we've talked about Kill Bill, which is heavily influenced by 
uh, Lady Snowblood, especially this one. So, oh, big time. <laughs> so, and, and we are aware of it. For those of you who don't think we are aware of it, <laughs> yeah, it's it's obviously the number one influence. Yeah. I mean, right down to using the theme song from this film and some of the backdrops and stuff. And I, I do want to say, I'm going to come out and say it. I don't. Well, maybe this might be. Bo- I don't know that this film in the years following Kill Bill would have had it anywhere. I know, in fact. It wouldn't have had anywhere near the visibility it's had uh, if it wasn't for Tarantino. Yeah, I think that's what people forget sometimes. I think one of the great things about filmmakers like Tarantino and the and these guys uh, is that they kind of bring films back. Um, and I think that uh, for those who loved this film before Kill Bill, well, that's great. But I think that you know this kind of brought this film back for more people to see. Kill Bill did. So. Yeah, you, you you know people can can not like Tarantino and they can say, well, I, I liked Lady Snowblood. You know, when it came out, well, not when it came out. Well, maybe some of our listeners are that old. But um, came I like the, the, I the year I was born. For you. <clears throat> What's that? It came out the year I was born. So. Nice, nice. Um, but so, you know, I'm sure there's a ton of our listeners that, that liked it before Kill Bill. Um, and that's that's good, you know. But in saying that, you can't deny that having Tarantino and him referencing this film didn't do it a service in terms of exposing it to another audience. Mm-hmm. And in terms of um, labels, uh, i.e., well, maybe Animago had their, their DVD, probably maybe before Kill Bill, but um, uh, but uh, Arrow, for example, uh, taking a chance to put it on blue, you know, just because they have more visibility, right? right so let's, right, let's right. give credit where it's due. Um, so, yeah, I guess I can jump into my stuff. Jump into it. Okay, so yeah, we said this is the steel book. Now, before anyone goes and orders this kind of in a rush, uh, let's see a few things. First of all, thanks be to Diabolic for this episode. This is our Diabolic episode. Yes, I don't think we even um, said that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we did. But um, <clears throat> this is a Region B Blue Steel book. So have a Region Free player or, or hack that can make your player Region Free. Yeah. Um, this was a rewatch for both of us. Well, it was a rewatch for me for both films. For you, it was a rewatch of the first one, but you've not seen the second one, which we'll get to. But um, I was interested to see this because I haven't seen this in probably, so, well, I think the last time I watched it was before we even started the show by a couple of years. Yeah. So I saw this a little bit after Kill Bill. I saw this uh, when uh, I was uh, reading about Kill Bill and uh, Tarantino was talking about Lady Snowblood and films like that. I saw this like right after that. Nice. Hey, I got to give it up right now. Very quick tangent. My cousin Brittany, who's on our our Facebook group a lot now, big Bruce Campbell fan, she brought me, and I got next one. You're down. I'm going to try to coordinate getting you a couple bags. She works at this great chain in Ottawa, Bridgehead, which is a high-end coffee place. Mm-hmm. So like Martin, Tony, listen to ours in Ottawa, Ottawa area, all know Bridgehead. She always brings me a couple bags of some, speaking of Tarantino, some gourmet shit. <laughs> she got me this Mexican dark that's like... um bittersweet dark chocolate with hints of toasted marshmallow yes and this nicaraguan oh man i'm drinking that mexican dark this morning it's fucking beautiful so it's a little coffee talk there but um it's nice i gotta get you a few bags i'm gonna try to time out when you come down next she's i got the goods and i can hand them off to you to take home she's uh, notorious for being the first person to ever give a 10 to a film on our show right no, that was actually my other cousin. Jesus, was, I get him confused. That was my cousin Danielle, who goes by Lou Bones. Oh, that's but right, Lou is, Bones. That's right. This is Brittany, who is anyway. It's convoluted. Their their mothers are sisters, which is they're also their their mothers are my mother's sisters. There's three sisters on my wife's my mom's side. Okay. okay. There we go. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so this is directed by Toshia 
uh, excuse me, Toshia Fujita, a pretty accomplished filmmaker in Japan. Uh, you know, he had a history working with um, with Miko Kaji <clears throat> in the Stray Cat Rock films, um, part of the Alley Cat Rock series. Uh, they're good films. For those who haven't seen them, I want to say they come in a set. I can't remember because I, you know, they're pretty available anyway. So you know, they're definitely um, films that people can uh, can can track down and you know they can get their hands on. So he'd worked with our girl before, um, you know, so they had had some history. Now th- that's more contemporary stuff, though, as far as. Um, Filmmaking. This, I believe, was the first film uh, he had made that was actually period set. So, you know, it was a bit of a change for him. And as with all Japanese films of the time, uh, being period and genre, um, he did he it, work he worked with her on uh, was it the Straight Cat films? Is that what it was? Yeah, 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 exactly. The Straight Cat Rock. The two they did two films. I think it was two films together. I want to say it was two, which is a fun little series of films. Um, <clears throat> for those of you that are interested, so yeah, and these were based, of course. Um, this is our second Miko Kaji, of course, behind Female Prisoner Seven Hundred One Scorpion, mm-hmm. which, I, to be honest, upon revisiting both films now for the show, I prefer Female Prisoner Seven Hundred One. <sighs> Ooh, um, no, I prefer Lady Snowblood. Do you? Okay, but but it's, cool. it's it's the overall influence of Lady Snowblood on so much stuff I love. Mm-hmm. That makes me love it so much. However, <laughs> this you take the the actual sword play out of Lady Snowblood from Mikokashi, and uh, you know you take that out, which I think is a major hindrance to the film, in my opinion. Total, it, it absolutely is. It abs- I was stunned on a rewatch how weak she is with a sword. Yeah, it's really it's really pretty. Well, it's pathetic, but it it, it is what it is. I mean, right? It's just supposed to be. I mean, yeah. it's movie swordplay, and you know she doesn't know how to really <clears throat> operate that that butter knife she carries around. No, no, it's true. It's it's funny you say that because they shoot a lot of that stuff in close. But uh, you know, but I prefer you know the first two female uh, female scorpion films, convicts films to uh, to this. I think was it beasts, not beast. Mm-hmm. Was it the third one? They're very anyway. they're very close to me. I'd, I'd be curious going back and see what I gave female scorpion as opposed to what I gave this. So yeah. This one, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was my mood. I was really tired when I watched these two, and, and you know, it's been a long time. But anyway, um, so what is this? Okay, so the film opens up, and it's got this really kind of um, – let's steal the – actually, let's get this out of the way. You and I had commented off the air, these Blu-ray transfers are a disappointment. Um, there's two films on especially, one 50-gig disc. Yeah, especially part one. Especially part one, which is surprising. Because part two looks quite quite good in spots. Mm-hmm. The only consistent highlights for me are the sound in both yeah. films. Yeah. And w- the whites look really good in the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the uh, the Lady Snowblood uh, transfer doesn't look much better, in my opinion, than the DVD that I have. So No, I agree. I mean, the Animago one I have is a little dark, but... Yeah, you know, this is a little bit brightened up and clean, but it's not it's little, not leaps yeah. and bounds better. A little bit. It's still pretty dark and blurry in spots too though. Yeah, this one I'm surprised how soft it was in certain spots too, which was a disappointment. Yeah. You know, but because these films all visually, the Japanese films at the time visually are so striking. Especially yeah, especially Lady Snowblood. Lady Snowblood is very strong visually. Mm-hmm. It's a very visual film. Uh it's got a lot of interesting set pieces. Again, 
like I say, if you're like me and you saw Kill Bill before you saw this, you'll see you'll see tons of Kill Bill in you know, like the first ten minutes of Lady Snowblood. <laughs> Even my wife last night at the end of the part one, she was like, "Holy fuck! He totally he totally lifted from this for Kill Bill." <laughs> yeah. I was like, "Yeah, that's the truth." So, yeah. but yeah, it, it it is a disappointment, and the blue the Blu-ray is bare bones too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's um, a ten or twelve minute interview. Trailers. There's not a whole lot, which is disappointing, you know, because Japan has a much better history of of um, keeping their films in good shape versus Hong Kong and other Asian countries. And you know, you would think that there'd be a little more material to go with. You could shoot something, even if it was subbed. I don't know how. Even if they, even if they didn't get the principles involved uh, from Japan, but there's enough people, i.e., Jasper Sharp, who writes a great essay inside one of the booklets, who's a tremendous wealth of knowledge. Um, a Japanese film. Even if they got some, you know, some talking heads to kind of talk about the film and some anecdotes that they'd read, some like that. But you know, it, unfortunately, they don't. Um, so yeah, the film opens and it is really a tremendous revenge story. You know, a woman is basically getting, allowing herself to be raped repeatedly, so she can ha- bear a child to become a vessel of revenge for the people that destroyed her life. <laughs> so this baby, from the moment it's born. It's born out of pure revenge. I laugh at the that the uh, the fact that she allows herself to be raped because if you look at it, it's almost like she's raping the dudes. <laughs> yeah, no, I know she's a, she's a feral cat. Yeah, she is. He's a cat in heat. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's really sets it's a really powerful thing, you know, especially as you get older. And it, it is a lurid element, but it's one of those things that. You think, man, you know, it's just some heavy revenge shit. You know, she allows herself to get violated again and again for the hope that one day this little tiny vessel of revenge, this seed, can become Lady Snowblood. Which, in fact, I didn't know this. The name Lady Snowblood, the Japanese pronunciation, is a play on Snow White. The two oh, words yeah. are very yeah. similar to each other. Yeah. So that was a cool little factoid. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. And it's, a, it's a comic book character. Uh, oh, I didn't even mention that. That's a, right. A the, manga. the manga from uh, who yeah. um, uh, the two Kazuos, uh was it Koiki and uh, Kamimura? Yeah, let's go. Let's go with that because if I try to say the names, it'll just sound worse. So yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> and they also did Lone Wolf and Cub, my favorite series of films. Yeah, yeah, they're also responsible for Lone Wolf and Cub. So there you go. Yeah, that's right, man. That's right. Fuck, I totally looked it over. Thanks for bringing that up. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, Lady Snowblood is born in a women's prison, and she's kind of baptized in the snow. I love that opening scene. I think it's really strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Really strong. And the reds, again, <gasps> the colors are clean and crisp. You know the thing that, um, what is it, my, my wino hiccup on air? <laughs> yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, um, the, like the drunk mouse from Looney Tunes. I yeah. am. <laughs> Little bubble comes out and pops in front of the microphone. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that kind of like that Japanese theater technique. And I'll, I mention this on every show that does it, that we, we review a Japanese film, where they take everything outside of the immediate thing we're focusing on on a set and they black it out. It's almost like they put a spotlight on the only thing they want us to look at in the scene. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. As if that's to say that's the only thing that matters in that moment is is how immersed we are and the characters are in the context of what they're doing in that scene. They bla- they do that early on in this with the prison stuff when the baby's born, which is really great. Um, <clears throat> Lady Snowblood's character, Miko Kaji's character, Lady Snowblood, 
is very much a Leone-esque kind of anti-hero. She's silent. She's got a steely look. Her eyes, the way they lock on things, um, it very Clint-esque. Yeah, Miko Kaji's acting with her eyes is uh, oh. is a true gift. Um, yeah. One of my notes is that, you know, she does more with her eyes than, you know, a lot of actors can. And uh, I know that she's been approached to, to do American work, but she's always felt like that she... This wouldn't work well in American cinema. I don't think she's done much, if any, American work. And uh, I know she's been approached by, you know, fans of hers oh, yeah. to pop up and stuff, but she's always kind of turned it down, uh, which I think is a real shame because she doesn't, she's one of these actresses who doesn't have to even talk. And she kind of brings a gravitas to the, uh, to the affair. She's one of the few people that, that can, she has an economy that works so well. You're right. Her eyes. She's able to do so much with her face. I mean, really, because she doesn't have a lot of dialogue in these two films. Yeah, hardly any, especially this first one. The first one, she's really quiet. Yeah, she is. It just, but it works so well. Mm-hmm. It works so. And other times, if for someone that didn't couldn't pull it off, it almost be like you could really pick up and key in on the fact that um, it was just they were they were hiding the fact that she wasn't you know, like a wrestler. They don't let two interviews, right? Right, right, kind of like that. But no, she's fantastic with her eyes. Um, I love when someone asks her early on, they go, who are you? And she just coldly says, revenge. Just so badass, man. And that's the thing that Japanese and Hong Kong films have always done better than their North American and European counterparts is given us strong female leads um, that are believable in handling themselves in very violent and typically very masculine quote-unquote situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i agree very with that. progressive yeah i agree with that um i love kaji's theme i mean it's so amazing there's a very good reason outside of just reference that tarantino picked it i mean it's beautiful it's sung by kaji i believe yeah i know she's she did she's done she's a quite an accomplished singer i think she put out you know a decent amount of uh, albums yeah from what i recall but you know she's this it's just such a great fucking theme um it's got a sense of melancholy to it. The whole film has this kind of sense of melancholy. It's like it's strange because it's not really celebrating the revenge, even though it is. But nope. it's there's just like sense of like uh, just you know dread to the whole affair, and the song works perfect for it. I think you bring up a good point because I feel like with both films, when you watch um, when you watch revenge films, they're usually you know yeah you know very visceral. And this one is, but this these two films are tinged with melancholy because there's moments when the stop the film stops to become a bit reflective when you stop. And I actually wrote this down, I think, for for both reviews near the back end that they're actually very tinged with sadness. Yeah. Not even tinged, they're steeped in a, a sadness that when she can breathe for a moment, you realize these are very sad films. And that, you know, as, as an older not an older man, but as a grown man now. Um, yeah, you're not you're realize. not drinking coffee with your cheeseburgers yet, so you're not. No, not yet. <laughs> but uh, you know, you can appreciate. You can think, well, what, a, what a sad existence she has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How I sad mean. must that be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because you see the scenes where she's training as a kid, and it's not like a kung fu film where it's like this really great training montage. You you stop and think, man, this child's been born for one thing, and she's been deprived of any sense of normalcy in her life. I mean, she's a vessel of revenge, and that's it. Right. You know. Right, which is it's, it's interesting because I believe the comic, from what I understand and what I read a long time ago, the, the comic is really, the whole run of the comic is basically 
this revenge plot. Yes, and, that's right. It's it stretched out, right? So yeah. It's, it's like Lone Wolf and Cub where right. let's just say it was over six years. Right. It would be interspersed with subplots, much like Lone Wolf and Cub did effectively with its six-film series. Right, right. So it had a where basic this, gigantic thread and then it had, like she was an assassin for hire in between all that. Wandering the countryside, yeah. 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 So it's kind of interesting that they just kind of condensed it all into this very simplified revenge story, which actually kind of works for its benefit. But in the first film, not yeah. realizing, have the foresight to think that if this is a, if this is um, a hit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're going to have to do some soap opera revisionist history. Yeah, yeah, which is, I think is one of the big hangups of the second film, at least for me personally, is, is that yeah. it, it feels like like a sad story. <laughs> it, uh, it almost feels like you you could. Yeah, it it, it does. It, it it's a shame they didn't have the foresight to to sort of map that out better. Yeah. You know, yeah. to do three or four films in that sense. But, you know, that's, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm surprised when I watch these two films now how political they are. Um, of course, they don't become heavy-handed necessarily, but they do touch on some things that are – there's some very liberal sentiment in the films, very political sentiment, um, <clears throat> commentary on corruption, uh, you know, people in positions of power, politicians, preachers, um, police, just the corruption of people, and uh, it's just—it struck me. It's something I'd never realized before when I'd watched the films. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, there's yeah, it's a very mythic story uh, with her um, origin story. Um, I think too, and I wonder this. I might be reading way too much into this, but I wonder. You know, we always talk about the the sense or the weight of expectation heaped on children in Japanese culture to succeed. And I almost wonder if being a film that has very much uh, the sentiment it does politically, if it was also commentary on Japanese culture and it was, you know, the, the weight of expectation, albeit of a different sense, heaped on Lady Snowblood from birth. Hmm. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we <clears throat> who knows? We can only speculate. You can only speculate that, but, but I mean, it's a possibility, surely. Yeah. But I love this is very this is chaptered much is that even a word? Um, much like Kill is, Bill. <laughs> yeah, much like Kill Bill, um, and the great titles you know like Chapter Two, Crying Bamboo Dolls of the Netherworld. <laughs> yeah. They all have these fantastic titles. Yeah, the chapters are a lot better than the Kill Bill ones, which are like Chapter Seven, Bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think she has a list too. You know, I think there's a list made at some point, or there's a list around floating around at some point too. So. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, again, very Bill. And then, of course, the snow is, uh, you, you can tell that uh, Tarantino went for the same consistency of snow mm-hmm. in his uh, his snow sword battle. It's very white, pure, light, delicate snow. Yeah, this light, kind of fluffy, delicate snow that falls. It's, it's you know, and you've seen snow like that in real life occasionally. You know, it's like this real quiet, yes, light snow that falls. You ever been out there? I mean, I know you've been out in it, but, you know. <clears throat> for those who haven't experienced much snowfall, that's you know kind of what yeah. it's like. It's like this real peaceful, serene. It is. It is beautiful. Yeah, just a bitch Watching. to get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, there's a gambling house scene. Really, again, the whites look really great, and there's some Mifune-esque sharp instrument throwing at someone's face. Yeah. Which I wonder if that guy was like, motherfucker, you need to slow down with that. It's <laughs> yeah. like Mifune with the arrows in Throne of Blood, right? Yeah. Um, I love that, that 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 scene though has a really great moment because it has a moment where see what happens is <clears throat> Lady Snowball wants her revenge. She has four people she's got to kill. 
she's tracked down one of them to this gambling house, and they get caught for cheating, basically. And they're going to get killed by the gambling house or fucked up by the gambling house. And the sense of urgency and desperation arise because the wheels are turning ahead thinking, fuck, I'm here, I'm with this person, they're right under my nose, I can't do anything. They're going to kill them, it's going to fuck up my whole plan. She, you know, you, you can kind of paint this picture that she's telling herself in her head. I got to do something, I need to intercept, this is my revenge, I need to have this catharsis. So, you know, it, there's just that scene, and again, her eyes, the urgency in her eyes, the desperation, to, she's trying to desperately think of something on the spot to... To intercept what's happening, so she can have her moment with this this person. Oh, yeah, sorry, I was yawning. My bad. That was a moment. Oh, that's cool. That was a perfect time for me to yawn because yeah, yeah, you're basically you know leaving it open for me to reply. Then uh, I'm yawning over here. Sorry about that. Apologies. No, hey man, it happens to uh, both of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah. Okay, just keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, that's okay. And then uh, you know, some beautiful stuff. Certainly, like the evening scene at the rocky beach. Ah, um, yes, yes. Really beautiful, man. I mean, it evokes this kind of gray, steely determination, and um, the film is very episodic, which doesn't always work for me. I, again, I, I know, you know, it, it feels a little too episodic at times. I know each each person is a different hunt, so to speak, but. A little bit too episodic. Um, I, I never understand with a lot of the Japanese films, and even I want to say in the Stray Cat Rock series and a few other, um, like the Pinky Violence films, or the Pink films, um, there always seems to be some intrepid, hunky journalist. <laughs> the Japanese look upon journalists as these sex pots or something? <clears throat> Yeah, it's weird, man. I, I can't remember which, which one is it. I think it's with Michael Ike. It's a great, great, Fuck, it's a great comment. Intrepid, hunky journalist. <laughs> yeah, but there's always an intrepid, hunky journalist. They're always like that guy in She-Ra, that motherfucker with the mustache and the heart on his breastplate. Oh, so you essentially like Jake McLarge huge, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's the intrepid, hunky, poor hound weekend. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, baby. But, uh, he's got to grow his mustache out, but... Um, you know, but it just—it's funny that was in that. Um, dark. Uh, there's a quote in this. I, I it, it reminded me. I think dark, darkster. Wow, Dexter is used on the show. Darkster. <laughs> fuck. What dark fuel deed remains unavenged? I want to say that that Dexter lifted that. Dexter, good old Dexter, but I don't know for sure. Might have. Um, I like how Japanese genre films, they're always classy affairs, which we always mention when we do a Japanese genre film. You know, they're always well shot. Um, the sets always look great. And the scores are always great. This one can mind's kind of dick and jazz and kind of funky stuff of the time. And, and it works well in this. And it feels organic to the film still. Yeah, I think which is cool. I think that they made they made a choice. Uh, I know the the comic has an abundance amount of nudity in it. They made a choice to cut the nudity, except for an uncomfortable moment of like a 12-year-old girl being nude. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. which which you know again the, the it's the times it's this type of cinema i mean we talked me and jake talked about this when we did uh uh lone wolf and cub i can't remember which one we did part four part five i can't remember what uh, i think it was part five maybe yeah, six we did four which is my favorite maybe six i don't know anyway uh, one of them has the close-up of the the wet buttocks of a child and, you know mm-hmm. it's these uncomfortable moments that in our, in our society now you know it's like oh jesus what am i watching you know mm-hmm. but uh you know, I think it's just for the culture and stuff, but I think it's a good choice to go without the nudity as an exploitation, as an exploitation device. Well, it is because the character of Lady Snowblood is a machine. We don't need to see her whipping her titties out, and yeah, she doesn't even and, eat. 
She doesn't eat. She doesn't drink. She yeah. doesn't indulge herself in any of the small sort of creature comforts or the the little pleasures in life that <clears throat> that humans have. She's a force of nature. She's yeah. uh, a high plains drifter. She is. Yeah, so it's, it's, she it's is one of those type of characters. Um, not, I love not a Yojimbo because that fucker eats all the time. <laughs> yeah, eats and drinks and you know. Um, <laughs> The uh, I love the Buddhist prayer scene with the green gel in the lens. That was really cool. Yes, that, that looked good. That mm-hmm. looked good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, there's there's a decent amount of arterial spray, but not as much as I'd like. But there's a great moment of arterial mist <laughs> that gets sprayed on her suit, or her kimono near the back end of the film, <laughs> and just the determination on her determination on her face when she's pushing that sword in, you know, and it's just the mist is spraying everywhere. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um. I I you know I like to think I'm I'm a bit of a the genre film weapon, not an expert, but I, I know my genre film weapons, but I can say I've never heard of a thunder sand bomb. <laughs> I got, I got the same thing written down here too. It says thunder sand bomb with a question mark. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that means, but uh, those either. motherfuckers didn't like it. <laughs> thunder sand bomb. Whoa. Yeah. Didn't bother our, our, our main girl though. Um, but yeah, that stuff, then it starts to get shot in really tight cause she's really whirling and wheeling dealing. Um, I would guess Thunder Sand might be gunpowder. Oh, yeah. Good call, man. Maybe so. I mean, that would be my guess. But, but the, it was red. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. If it, that, is, if it is, in fact, gunpowder and sand, that could still be a deadly combo because not only do you have the explosion, but then you get sand in the eyeball. Like, oh, sand in the eye. I don't know. Maybe, maybe nice. I'm going <laughs> to Sometimes the arterial spray, when it hits garments, and this sounds like sand hitting a piece of plastic or something, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good call. Very good call. Um. I, there's a moment when she's denied her revenge at the back end of the film. Yes. Um, her face changes. And it's easily my favorite and the most memorable moment in the film for me. Not only is it the most visceral moment for me in the film, but I think it says everything about the film, uh, about the character's motivation. I don't think this is spoiling anything, but someone denies her revenge. And despite this... She's not going to let that deny her her bloodlust. Yes, and she 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 slices something. Yes, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say to what degree, but then the curtain comes down, and it's just my favorite moment in the film. It's always the moment the moment I take away from the film. Yeah, it's a truly cinematic moment. I mean, this move this movie is self conscious of what it is the whole time. It's almost meta in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's telling you a story, and you know, not only that, but you get that moment where the curtain comes down. Exactly. I mean, there's no exactly. point for the curtain to come down there outside no. of it being, you know, a Cinematic. storytelling device. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, pretty much all I know is there's a Zorro mask ball, and um, <laughs> yeah. I have to wonder if Abel Ferreira was influenced by this little back half, this little uh, closing set piece from Ms. 45, because that was like a costume party. Although there was more French horn masked as saxophone but um <laughs> but it's it's sort of the same thing a woman who's blinded by revenge yeah at a costume party and or even a good old kub man kubrick with the orgy and those mud mids the masks i'm reaching but um yeah the blood and I, it's pretty great the snow is beautiful mm-hmm. um and this is one of the quotes from her song because they subtitle her song which is a good idea the quote that she says she gave, she gave up her tears long ago. Yeah. That's a very poignant line. Yeah. yeah. She's denied herself one of the most basic 
of human emotions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there you go. All right. Um, this is basically for me. This film is like the archetype of a cult film in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it, it really. Once I saw it, it really there was a lot, a lot of films I saw that were quite like it in some ways, and I can see why Tarantino lifted so heavily from it. It must have been, you know, he must have seen it, and it must have just been like a, you know, like the first time you see. I don't know. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but uh, oh fuck, I've seen so many movies at this point. I don't even know if I can bring one to the. But I mean, you know, like the first time you see something, you know, you just it just sticks with you forever, and it'd be easy to to have this stick with you and want to make something out of it um, because it just has all these great little vignettes and and uh, I kind of like the way it's broken up and, and I know that you kind of didn't really care for it but I kind of like the way that it's kind of broken up into these little vignettes they're almost like they're similar yet different in, in so many ways and um, of course the basic uh, driver of revenge is 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 it's just such a simple device to get uh, human emotion going. Uh, we've we've oh, talked about this so much, you know, about revenge in films and stuff and exploitation films in general. I mean, revenge is just, it's, it's an easy motivator. It's, it's, it, 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 it connects to the very primitive part of the human psyche. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could sit around and have conversations about revenge for decades. Is it right? Is it wrong? Alone is, is a conversation you could have till the end of time. It's it's one of the most um, visited and revisited plot points and themes throughout film, mm-hmm. and for good reason because it is so rich and it's such a complex gray area thing. Everyone, everyone does. I mean, I think a lot of us can say a lot of our favorite films are revenge films. We've covered numerous revenge films. Our first episode yeah. was revenge films. So. Yeah, revenge films are. I mean, if you if you talk about the genres <clears throat> that we love. Revenge films are, are predominant in those genres. Uh, mm-hmm. Even horror films are revenge films. I mean, uh, Friday Thirteenth itself is basically a, a whole revenge series. film. It's yeah, a whole series job. of revenge. Uh, <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a whole series of revenge. <laughs> it's you know, I mean, revenge is everywhere. So it's 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 a theme that is common to most genre cinema, and it just you know, it like I say, you could have conversations about it forever. Um, but I do like that this film is kind of like a fever dream of ideas and cinematics and and things that you know are done for the sake of cinema as opposed to it making any real sense to do it. Mm-hmm. I like that. Oh, absolutely. I, I would agree with you. It's something the Japanese always do the meta mm-hmm. stuff better because it never feels like we're they're saying, "Look how smart we are." It's almost like a reverent thing to cinema. It feels like right. Right, which is you know like my fa- my least favorite thing. Whenever anybody reviews a film, is my least favorite thing they do is when they apply reality to, oh, a, yeah. to a film. I know. That is, I know to a film that's not asking for you to apply reality. That's right. Once you start applying reality to cinema or storytelling of any type, shape, or form, you're missing the point of storytelling. <laughs> so absolutely, I don't understand that. I mean, I mean, we all do it. It's, it's something you can fall into easily, but reality is never as interesting. At least for me, when it comes to storytelling, reality is never as interesting as you know just telling the story. So I think that you know you could you got to look around that kind of stuff. You know, there's a moment where you know there's somebody says something about getting passed around. Of course, you know that's the law of HHW. We all know that Horrorhound Weekend. You know, asked uh, Justin the Cinemasochist. You know he's 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 we uh you know <laughs> yeah the Village Bicycle <laughs> <clears throat> the Village Bicycle. 
The uh, village power bottom. <laughs> With the Batman mask on the back boy. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of costume balls, <laughs> we'll show him some balls. Yeah. Those two riding down to... <laughs> Those two riding with mask on in the in the in the Jeep. Yeah. In the Zommobile. Um but yeah, the the, the boot transfer is disappointing. It has some increased clarity maybe, but uh, no real noticeable pop from the D V D that I can see that would really especially this transfer that I I mean I never had seen the other film, so I don't know, but this one uh, I'm just not really seeing a whole I mean it, it obviously it looks better than the D V D in some ways. But you know, I was kind of hoping for it to really, you know, pop. You know, watch it on the, on as my son says, the big TB. And you know, we we and I, well, he didn't watch it with me, obviously. But you know, I had it yeah. up on there, so I'm expecting some pop, some cinematic uh, glory, some moments, you know, of, you know, the, <laughs> some you know mild arousal, that kind of thing, you know, because you know I love yeah. my movies, but uh, it didn't really just didn't really pop for me, you know, which was kind of a shame. But the movie still holds up for me. Uh, like I said, I've always liked uh, Kaji's eyes, uh, and and what she can do with her eyes is is pretty amazing uh, without dialogue and stuff. And that that's always one of my favorite things. I mean, it reminds me of Bronson and you know Once Upon a Time in the West or Eastwood. And abs, totally. That's what I meant to say. Above Eastwood, even as Bronson. Sorry to interject. Yeah, because Bronson can do. You know, he could always do a lot with his face. Or even we were t- we've been talking about him a lot recently. Warren Oates. Warren Oates was a great example of an actor who a lot of times didn't have to say anything. Uh, or even mm-hmm. maybe the master of that, Steve McQueen, who did a lot with just uh, you know the movement of his brow or just the movement of his face. Um, I know that for a fact that he would go through scripts and he'd cut out tons of dialogue he had in movies, saying, "Look, I can do this with a look." You know, didn't he do that with Bullet quite a bit, right? Yeah, he did a bunch of Bullet. He cut out tons of uh, dialogue in Bullet because it was real <laughs> dialogue heavy, supposedly. But he just cut a bunch of it out. He says, "Look, people don't want to hear me talk." So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he knew what his strength was. His strength was reaction. It wasn't, you know, acting. It wasn't being the forefront. It was reacting. Exposition. So, yeah. So he would cut all that out. You, see, you know, and it's true. You can do a lot. If you know human characteristics, you can do. And this crosses cultures. You can do a lot with eyes and face movements and gesture, body language, so to speak. That, you know, that's one of the few things that worldwide cinema we all share is body language and there might be some cultural differences but most of it anger uh sadness these type of things that, that's that that crosses all cultures so mm-hmm. uh, so it's something that i think miko kaji does really really well and it's it's very it's very important i think that uh fujita he 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 makes this film this film feels patient it mm-hmm. doesn't feel rushed i know it was rushed i believe it was very low budget and uh that they didn't have a whole lot of room for error when they were making this. And uh, at least that's what I've read. I, I, I don't know if that would be a fact, but I've, I've read that, that that they had very little film stock, blah, 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 all these, you know, I don't know if they're urban urban legends at this point or what, but that's what I've heard. I've heard, you know, they had like a minimal length of film they could use and they had to get it all right. <laughs> yeah, I like that you say that because it does feel patient, which I think is important because she spent her whole life mm-hmm. Her whole life has been about patience. Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd have to be patient to follow through on this type of revenge plot. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no way you couldn't be patient. We don't. They never really say her age. I don't think. I mean, they give you years. I think, or maybe dates. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe you can imply date and stuff, but I don't think they ever really say her age or anything. So, I don't really have a whole lot more to add. You've covered a lot of it, but like I said before, uh, her presence is great, but you know, her swordplay is not. Yeah. But I don't think this is a film 
I should say this too because I said this earlier. You know, I don't really care for the the sword play in these films, but her her presence is so great. I don't really know if you even really need it. Like it is, it is definitely a detriment to the film. If if you want to get if you want to come at it at that angle as an action revenge film, then I think if this is your first time seeing it, you're going to be disappointed mm-hmm. because I don't think her sword play is anything more than somebody who it looks very rehearsed let's put it that way (laughs) yeah um but the emotional weight of the revenge plot is still there and it still works i don't think you need it and i I don't i don't don't think that fujita he overplays it i think he knows that that's not a strength of the story yeah you're right because in fact up until this time i was watching with a critical eye it never occurred to me that her sword play was you know, and this is the only chambara, whatever you want to say, but it doesn't. Uh, <clears throat> it's a chambara that works in spite of its lack of good sword play. Yes, yes. Uh, only one last note. I got well, I got Thunder Sand Bomb, which you wrote, <laughs> but I also got. Uh, I love the flying hands moment. I love the moment where there's a, a slice and you see some hands just fly off into the distance. <laughs> oh, and what's great is then you get the blood dripping down the cufflinks. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty great, man. It always makes me laugh. You know. It's one of those films where the, the violence makes me, you know, giddy because it's it's just ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculous violence, but it it makes me laugh a little bit. And, of course, you know, my wife did get to see some of it, and she was just like, this is <laughs> this is insane. And she was talking about it because, you know, she'd come back in the room, she'd hear, yeah. what, the, what am I watching, garden hose porn or something? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she she uh, she, she was kind of laughing at it, too. And I was like, well, that's kind of the point. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like it's... It is ridiculous, and you know it's ridiculous. But, you know, it's a cultural thing, and it's again, it's a cinematic thing. Yeah, it's cinematic. It's not supposed to be reality. I mean, my wife is, you know, she's in the medical field. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, bodies don't really <laughs> do that. They do squirt. They don't. Uh, <laughs> they don't <laughs> spray quite like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do. Uh, you know, the <clears throat> blood does squirt, but it squirts to the beat of the one's heartbeat, not to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the heart, the heart rate of these guys, man. It's like fucking birds or something, like a like a rodent. <laughs> you know. So, but anyway, uh, I, but I do think this is a, a very important cult film. Uh, this is one of those very. films where I think that the influence of Lady Snowblood weighs heavier than the actual film itself. It's one of those, you know what I mean? It's almost like uh, like we talk about Bava. How you know you're not a big Bava guy. I'm not a huge Bava guy. Maybe a little bit more than you, mm-hmm. but the weight of Bava carries through most of italian cinema of the mid 60s and on right even bava himself is in there and even he does some stuff that you know other people are doing and you still feel the weight of a mario bava or a sergio leone on the spaghetti western or something like that this weight that they carry and i feel like this film maybe not fujita himself but i feel like this film as far as cult cinema goes especially the female protagonist aggressive female character i feel like this film maybe weighs the heaviest on that genre mm-hmm. so yeah that's fair that's my thoughts on that so let's hear your scores and stuff um i'd be interested what you score this <clears throat> okay because i really i really have no idea what you're going to score it on your review because i i, I kind of thought for a minute i did and then you kind of threw a curveball at me you threw a sun thunder sand bomb at me so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um Make or break the moment I talked about. I don't want to spoil the moment and reveal exactly what she does when she's not going to be denied her revenge. With someone trying to deny her her revenge, with involves rope. Oh, yes, you know what I mean? yes, yes, yes. Right before the curtain comes down. Mm-hmm. 
Um, my MVT is Miko Kaji's face. Oh, yes. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, it just it works so well, as we've said through the review. Score for the film is an 8 out of 10. Oh, okay. 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 It's still, I mean, it's still a great film. No, oh, nice. It's still a great film. But I was very tired. I was sick, so I was cranky as fuck. You know, I've seen it a lot too. So, you know, I wasn't. I didn't have stars in my eyes watching. I was watching it critically when I was tired and sick. But, you know, it was still a great film, um, for a lot of reasons. And uh, yeah, yeah. The heavy eight. Um, my make or break is the first bit in the snow. It's just fucking gorgeous. If you could take anything out of this oh, to yeah. just like show people. Uh, you know, that would be the scene. And obviously, you know, like I said before, Tarantino's heavily influenced by that moment. But it's so great. The sound of walking on snow, which, uh, again, is a great sound effect anyway. By the way, my wife hates that sound. She hates the sound of uh, crunching crunching snow. I love it, too. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I do, too. And I love it. <laughs> I just love the sound, you know. Of course, I don't, you know, I think she associates the cold with it. But, uh, you know, me, I just love the... <laughs> the way it sounds and of course you know the umbrella and, and it's, it's so much of the stuff the parasol i guess you could call it or whatever you want to call it but um i don't know maybe they call it something different somewhere else you know like toboggan and took yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> but uh i really just like that scene it's just so gorgeous i mean it really is it's just so and of course you know there's blood on the snow at some point so you know which always works right the harsh contrast of red and white mm-hmm. uh my mvt i want to give this to to Kaji, uh, I really do, um, but I don't. I've never seen anything else by Fujita except this film. I, I've never seen the Stray Cat films. Oh, they're fun, man! You would, you would, you'd have a lot of fun yeah. with them. I know of them, and I've never seen them. But uh, so I don't know anything really about Fujita. I've looked through his filmography, and I don't think I've seen anything of his. Except- I think I've seen some other stuff too. But the problem with IMDb is that they do everything in the native language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fucking bullshit, man. Which you, you'd have to, you have to really kind of look at, you have to look them up then, right? You have yeah, to and then of, you look at names and you're piecing it together. It's just, it'd be, it's so, such a, a detriment to the reference, the referential nature of, of IMDb yeah. is to research things. And I can't research it because it's in a fucking language I don't speak unless <laughs> I already know it, which is the irony. If I'm looking it up, it's because I'm not sure on it. And I'm pretty positive I haven't seen anything that he's done. Outside of this film and now part two, um, I'm pretty positive. I could be wrong. Somebody could call me out on it. Even I could have uh, said I've seen something else, and maybe I have, and I'm just not realizing what it is because of this list of films. Yeah, uh, me too. But uh, as far as I know, this is the, these are the only two Fujita films I've seen. So I'm going to give this to him because I think this is this is a unique and this this is like a you know like a Bava type situation. This is a situation where I think that. You know, his film has gone on to influence many filmmakers that have, that have followed. So, uh, I have to give it to him for that. Kaji's a very close running second, though, uh, on that one. Uh, I did like her quite a bit in the second one. Just a spoiler alert there. Uh, my score is a little bit higher than yours, 8.5. I like it just a little bit more. I think it comes down to the simple things. Like, I did like the episodic nature of it a little bit more and a couple other things. But, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you, though. I mean, it's half point higher, you know, so... Great film, you know. It's 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 always great to revisit it. It flows good. It's a great simple story, and uh, so, you know, the question is, you know, people would ask, you know, what do you what do you choose, Lady Snowblood or Kill Bill? <laughs> well, I'll choose Kill Bill, and that that may be blasphemous, but I'm sorry, man. I mean, there's so much going on. Like we've often said, but people don't want to give, you know, cinematically. Okay, is it is it a mixtape of sorts? It's a new sure, but 
the stuff he does with Gordon Liu when he's got the wuxia stuff, kung fu stuff, he's got chambara, he's got revenge, he's got spaghetti western. I mean, you're throwing all that into the pot and you're doing it effectively. I mean, I'm sorry. It becomes a situation of of bava versus uh, argento. I think for me, it is the nature of Kill Bill that I love so much. It is the mismatch, the the, the melting pot of. And Uma's better with a sword. Let, let's call. Let's be. Let's let's oh, say yeah. it up. You know, she worked her ass off. That scene. I'll tell you right now, the scene at the House of Blue Leaves, as I said in our review, is one of my favorite scenes ever put to film. Yeah. And if she sucked ass with that sword, mm-hmm. wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't have worked. You know, no. she's good in that scene, and it's shot well, covering up any deficiencies she would have. So, yeah, man, you know what? People can say what they want. This came first. Fair enough. But Yeah, yeah. But again, we've, you know. we've often said on the show, and I've often said personally, just because you came first don't mean you made the better version of it. That, Amen, brother. That, 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 doesn't, that also doesn't always mean anything. That, that, that has weight, like I've said before. That, that's important. But it, it tends to be, in most art, it's not always the first person that does something that makes it the, the greatest of all time. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah, you, you can't put them as bulletproof and then shit on the one that came second. Yeah. It's just like people can't say that some of De Palma's work isn't superior to Hitchcock's work. Not just yeah. all of it, but well, I mean, I think most people who know me know where I stand. But uh, oh, no, yeah, and I and I prefer De Palma as well. Yeah, but I I, I do love Hitchcock don't yeah. get wrong, more than you do. But yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, but I mean, to me, like, De Palma is what I wanted Hitchcock to be, and yeah, so he improves he, upon the themes that I already that I admired in Hitchcock, but didn't love. Right. So, in some ways, that's just the same kind of argument we're having here, or the same kind of debate we can talk about for hours. Is that it's the people that are influenced by these these heavy films, or uh, these important films, these landmark films that sometimes go on to make the more interesting piece of art out of it so and i'm, I'm with you i pick uh, kill bill over this too but it's mostly because of that it's because it's got spaghetti westerns it's got it's it's got all my genres you, you take both those films put them together it's got almost every genre i love all thrown into one big you know three and a half hour four hour thing uh, so yeah it's pretty great so and those blues were two two films on one disc that will look a lot better than these do yeah i just i just upgraded those because they were 399 this uh, past week so i just upgraded yeah. my, my kill bill set all right, nice. uh, we're going to take a short break, come back and talk a little Lady Snowblood love song of vengeance. Yeah. Which is not a song by Buck Owens. We'll be back right after this. Monday, Monday, happy day. Throughout broadcast history, only the greatest of shows have become popular enough to support a successful spinoff. We believe that time has come for the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Introducing We Are Family. Family Movie Night. Family Movie Night. You can find us on iTunes, 
darling. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. You're just as lovely as you used to be. How's your new love? Are you happy? Hope you're doing fine. Just to know it means so much to me. What's that, darling? How am I doing? Guess I'm doing. Yeah, baby. Nobody quite used hairspray quite like that motherfucker. All right. Yeah, what a mane on him. Used to love a gold chain, too, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he also loved the Canadian tuxedos. Hell yeah. <clears throat> and the disco tuxedo, man. That linen jumpsuit he used to wear. Oh, yeah. Fucking yeah. right. Love the pinky ring, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Conway's very GGTMC, you guys. Go look at some YouTube videos. <laughs> you know, for those that don't know, Conway Twitty. <laughs> Yeah, that was a great name. Uh, I had to throw that in there because, oddly, it kind of fits the Lady Snowblood character in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> both songs, both country songs did. So, you know, I was looking for some stuff. I didn't have a disco track of the week this week. so. And I was going to send you some uh, early 80s reggae, but I didn't get around to it. <laughs> that would have been slightly different than a little Buck and Conway, I can tell you that. <laughs> All right, so our second film is Lady Snowblood 2, Love Song of Vengeance. Do you want to synopsize? You want me to synopsize? You got it in front of you? If you don't I have don't it, have it in front okay, of me. I'll I can probably bring it up in 30 seconds. But. No, it, it, they got a simple synopsis there. Lady Snowblood is caught in the politics of 19th century Japan. That's what it says. <laughs> so There we go. There we go. Um, the the uh, the thing we, uh, you know, I neglected to mention in my notes for the last <laughs> film was is that, you know, one of the things I love, I did talk about the snow scene. So one of the things I love about it is, the, you know, the opening to that film. The opening to this one is nice as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Although it does have a very, it has a very strange and yet kind of poetic kind of sword play running battle that's very interesting. Yeah, I like the opening. It's it's at a cemetery, and instead of Lady Snowblood in the white, she's in the black, and it's it's uh, yeah. it, it's it's a really good opening, actually. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it. I love the um, the way she just kind of moves. It's it's kind of like you know she's hindered by her her garb. And, uh, you know, the guys chasing her, there's like several times where they could have just cut her to pieces, but they're just like running with her. It's very strange, but it's nice, nice camera work. I love the kind of, it's almost like a tracking shot and it's it's really nice. And this film, I feel like is substantially better shot than the last one. Yes. Yeah. And and this one also, uh, we should say that it, um, it looks, we did kind of say last time it looks better. The transfer on the Blu-ray looks better. I don't know if this film is better preserved or what, but it does it does pop a little bit more color-wise and uh, is clarity-wise. It does look better than the first film on this set. Um, so yeah. there's that. I mean, we do get... Uh, they stay pretty consistent with her kind of stumbling around. She does... Oh, she always kind of gets injured a little bit or hurt, which I kind of like. And, you know, she kind of mm-hmm. stumbles around, which I think is a great touch. And again, oh, she sure. shows that great presence with her eyes that she knows shit's getting ready to go down. Um, 
it's again quiet moments and stuff but uh, i have to ask if one you know is she being hunted by sherlock holmes at one point you know <laughs> oh man i have a note in here a sherlock holmes note i can't remember where it is now but totally man totally he's, sherlock holmes he's rocking the tweed man <laughs> yeah man he's got the hounds too he's just rolling he's got the mustache he might even have a monocle <laughs> Fucking carriage and everything. Yeah. Plus, it's twelve minutes before you even get to the title of this mm-hmm. film, so it's it's a nice prolonged opening. Uh, some great beach stuff. Uh, yeah, that water stuff is really great. That's an amazing, beautiful long wide shot of her and that horse on the beach. Oh yeah, I mean, really a nice shot, man. Yeah, it's really great. And I, you know, this is my first time seeing this film, so I thought, wow, this one's really going to up the ante with uh, camera work. And uh, these gorgeous shots and stuff. And there are gorgeous shots throughout the film, but really nothing really in the film for me really captures the same kind of fluidity that the opening 12 12 or 15 minutes does. It really turns into like a chamber piece. It really turns into a very heavily dialogue-driven political kind of affair. Um, which which is fine for what it is, but it's weird because, you know, it opens with all this flash and then it kind of really just settles in and once it settles in it just kind of stays there well the weird thing is this film allows the politics of the filmmaker or the the manga creators to get in the way of the film to the point where despite having a runtime of less than 95 minutes the film feels bloated Mm -hmm. overstuffed and it marginalizes lady snowblood the point where a lot of times she's on the fringe of a scene and she just even just Miko Kaji in this one she, her performance is fine mm-hmm. but there's moments where she just she even feels like she's kind of uh, lost in the shuffle here like yeah. she's been pushed to the side and yeah. th- there's just too many subplots I just don't care about with this one I mean don't get me wrong I like this film mm-hmm. but you can't help but compare a sequel to its predecessor and if this had have been its own film, it would have been like, oh, that's a, that's a good little film. But when you, you have a film that's important to genre film, as Lady Snowblood, and then you follow it up with this one that's overstuffed with political subplots and and societal kind of commentary on um, imperialism, uh, you know, Western influence pervading Japanese culture. And, you know, because what's interesting, too, is you see her in the kimono throughout, um, at least I want to say it's a kimono. Forgive me if it's not. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, everyone else is wearing Western clothes, man. Like you said, fucking Sherlock Hemlock, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, the kind of background characters in this is, is kind of fun. Uh, they're kind of fun. I mean, you got one that almost looks like the S&M Hunter. <laughs> oh, totally. Oh, yeah, totally. There's totally the S&M Hunter. And there's also the other dude. He always played like a like a vampire. Wow, what was man? He's got he's the guy that looks a bit like the Japanese Crispin Glover. <clears throat> oh, the guy with no eyebrows. Yeah, man. He I've seen him in a ton of stuff. I want to say I've seen him as a vampire in a few films, Japanese films, like a a creature of the night. But uh, <laughs> what, what noise? That what music they make? What well. music they make? <laughs> Has anybody seen my eyebrows? <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> That almost sounds like my Romanian Gerard Depardieu. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, um, I think that what you say is is pretty interesting, though. The first film almost feels whimsical compared to this film. 
the first film feels like it exists on a plane of like non-reality like it's this almost like a like i said like a fever dream or something when you when you plan it in this harsh reality that is this film and you kind of stick her where she's always looking through slats of a house or she's always looking through a carriage she's always looking through something in this film it seems like to me she's like she's always the outsider on looking the outside in. looking in good point and and i feel like that's the because this is a lady snowblood film and because you go into it thinking you're going to get more of what you got in the first film i think you end up feeling like lady snowblood i feel like i think you feel like you're the outsider looking in the whole time and i just i, I would lose interest at times when there would be these scenes of of government intrigue and stuff not that that stuff can't be handled well i've seen several films some of my favorite films are government intrigue or espionage or political corruptness or things like that but this one just i don't know i mean it just doesn't it doesn't feel like it really kind of carries any real weight as as you know i think as an audience you're just kind of waiting for lady snowblood to get involved somehow some yeah. way to get some motivation for revenge or to get some kind of compassionate through line to kind of go with her character because i think her character is again she's a force of nature so you you need her to step up the you know the grim reaper routine here or something you know something needs to happen and it feels like for a long time in this film nothing happens it's like they have her stuck in first gear you know she'll get into second gear and then something chips her up and well in reality chips up the film you know and it, <clears throat> it never kind of lets her it never gets into the fluidity um that it needs to yeah i got a really uh, misogynistic note here but i got to say those are those are some impressive perky nipples on that one lady there, man. Oof. My wife saw those and she almost barfed, man. They look like, um, like Cocoa Puffs, man. She's cuckoo for Cocoa. Black guy was cuckoo for... You know what? Else? Speaking of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, man, there's some shrimping in here for old Zom. Yeah, there's some shrimping going on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he really he really wasn't... Uh, talk about some... Uh, well, I think on the Silver and Gold, they, the, one of the review notes is, uh, he's he, that guy's a real nipple licker. <laughs> so that's a critique I never thought I'd ever use on the GGTMC, but this guy really is a he's a nipple guy, man. He really is in love with the nipple. Uh, so, you know, and there's some there's some see, that's one of my bigger biggest problems with this film is there is a whole story right there between our lead anarch, anarchist um this 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 uh again suave hunky journalist type of character uh, oh yeah and and then we got this doctor character who hangs out in the forest and uh you know uh and they're brothers and it's it's well i don't know if it's a spot let's just put i won't say it's a spoiler or not but let's just say there's something involved and there's a mutual thing involved there and i feel like there's a lot more that could have been done with this that and it's really just kind of I don't know. It's kind of handled kind of strangely. It just doesn't really feel like it has any real weight to it either. And that yeah. that could be a real driver for some some serious primal anger and revenge. You know what I mean? And I just don't feel like there's anything going on there. Um, I do feel like the one of the main plot points that really does work in this film is is the kind of upper tier government mistreating the peasants type thing. Yeah. See, some of that stuff works well. In fact, you know what this film, it's weird. The, the subplot with like the left-leaning kind of um, um, studious, like the, the doctor, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of, and you know, she sent to deal with him. It reminded me of Bertolucci's The Conformist. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. how uh, Chinyo is sent to, you know, inadvertently take out his, his former mentor. Not that this is her mentor, but I don't know. Well, I mean, she, he is, in a weird way, almost like a father figure type character. Mm-hmm. That's another thing is the Lady Snowblood character. She's She's much more, I don't know. I don't know. She feels like she's at one point she goes under, you know, an assumed uh, kind of disguise in a way to become a housemaid and stuff. And that feels kind of forced um, again. But that's compared to the first film. I, that might have been I never read the uh, the comic. So maybe that's the, the way her character was all the time. Maybe she would, you know, become a housemaid somewhere in order to follow through with assassinating somebody. Or maybe she would become a I don't know. Maybe she just jumped into disguises off and on. But because of the first film, it just feels weird to put her into that spot. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas in the first film, she's floating around. She's kind of like this, you know, she's kind of like the ever-present heart attack that might happen to anybody at any time. She's fate, essentially. Right. In this film, she doesn't feel like fate. In this film, she feels like a character that's waiting for her opportunity. And I just don't think, I don't think the nature of the opportunity that's given is very satisfying in this film i would agree um but yeah they, they, we uh we get, do get a return to the eye patch too that's why that guy reminded me of the snm hunter because at one point he he ends up with a bowler hat on he's got teeth missing now he's got an eye patch this guy just keeps progressively getting in worse shape as the film goes along yeah, it, it was bizarre he would he hopped in the back of the carriage and he kept flashing his black fucking teeth <laughs> yeah. these bizarre facial contortions yeah. it's like what's wrong with this guy um <laughs> uh, that scene could have worked a lot better too. I mean, I like the mask, I like the look of it, but it didn't feel. It, it was a weird action scene. It didn't really feel like there was any real danger going on. It almost felt like you know some people filming some horses running next to a carriage. That's all it felt like. It's like we can't really see yeah. out of these masks, dude. So uh, let's be careful. <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's a shame because the mask looked good. It, it's a shame that it didn't didn't work as good as it could have. So the the. The like I said, the emotional kind of reflections that revenge give you, um, they're not present really here. They, they at some point they kind of pop up in some way, shape, or form, but it never really is that kind of visceral, primitive uh, type of revenge that you know you can discuss the uh, the family t- t- connection or anything like that. It's revenge for, uh, I guess for. Um, for society maybe at that point and stuff. And the problem is is they don't really they, they, they have these peasants, these people that are mistreated, the common folk, so to speak. Uh you never really get to know any of those people really. Um nope. they're just kind of background fodder. Um uh including more naked children running around. Uh uncomfortable. Not only naked children, but an old Japanese one with some fucking saddlebags <laughs> hanging out. They do her no favors by having her hunched over at the same time, man. Yeah, no. oh. I know. Jeez. I know. I know. <laughs> oh. But uh they so you have you know you have no real emotional connection there. You can just say that you feel bad for the masses because, you know, this awful thing happens or can happen or I do like some of the the comments on um, kind of biological warfare, some of the yep. things like that. Those are kind of cool. Uh, we talked right off the air before we came on that, you know, I've never been punched in the mouth so hard that it looks like I got a jawbreaker in my bottom lip. Um, but uh, we do get to see that again, uh, which is, you know, very cartoonish. It's like it's like the uh, the... 
the throbbing lump in a Looney Tunes cartoon. You know, when you oh, hit yeah. the head, you get the throbbing lump. That's how it feels, but I don't know if I've ever had a throbbing lump. <laughs> <laughs> you know? My son's hit his head hard enough where I thought he's had one, man. We can take my oh, kids man. when when kids hit their heads, kids man. The goose egg, dude. Oh man, they get the goose egg big time, don't they, man? Yeah, we never do. It's like the, yeah. they get, you know, rises it's, up, it's man. Like, goose egg. They almost get it instantly, man. I know, and it freaks you out too. It, like it freaks does. you. It's like oh. it's, it's like is this thing going to keep growing? When's it going to stop? Yeah, you know, at the time your son, your son or your daughter's screaming, you know, and you're like, oh my god, what can I, what can I? There's not really much you can do at that point. You just kind of no. got to wait it out. But man, well, anyway, um. But, you know, I mean, I think that the political elements, uh, again, the swordplay is, uh, outside of the first scene, again, the swordplay is pretty clumsy, but with her in particular, but it's still the way they move the camera and stuff, uh, uh, the tracking shot and and some of the shots in the beginning, you know, it kind of carries that swordplay element, so you don't really have to really criticize that too much. It's still essentially the same, though. It's no no different than it was in the first film. Um I just don't feel like this one, for me, just it just doesn't carry that emotional punch that I feel like it it needs to in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's oh. a, a cult film for the more serious set, but it just I don't no. know. I don't feel like the love song of vengeance title has anything to do with it either. No, I just that's just a lurid title. I'll tell you what it is. It's that thing we talked about where there's nothing more emotional than her getting her revenge on the people that did her wrong and did her mother wrong. So when you blow your load in the first film, all she's left with is is a cold kill. Yeah. If see if they see again, Lone Wolf and Cub, mm-hmm. all that all the side jobs they did were all subplots on the road to the final revenge. Right. So those payoffs are still good, and you're invested in, the, in them enough because you can't just have them on the road killing four people for six films or however many it was. I don't know how many it was. The whole Yagyu clan, I think it was, whatever it was. Um, you can't have that. So we're set up properly to have the diversion of hit man for hire or hit woman for hire. But in this, we've seen her revenge. She's gotten her revenge already. So it's just, you're kind of going through the paces. Like I said, you're going through the paces um, in an efficient and stylish way, in, or not efficient, but technically sound way, but, you know. Well, I, I, technically sound, maybe. I don't know. I, I just don't, never felt like it was really that interesting. You have a, a higher up who reports to the man with no, not, not reports so much, but use, relies on the man with no eyebrows, the vampire man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> and that doesn't really work because there's no real weight given to that character outside of that he's a bureaucrat, mm-hmm. a higher-ranked bureaucrat. But we don't really see any scenes of him being anything but a higher-ranked bureaucrat. Um, the the vampire, the eyebrowless man, uh, we don't really know anything outside of him outside of that he hangs out in this... <laughs> This this uh, decorated this very GGTMC decorated little den with a stuffed tiger. <laughs> yeah, I know it's bizarre. Man. <laughs> yeah. I think at one point they make the tiger's eyes sparkle. Yeah, it's very strange. Strange, but the, you know you don't really. Get, I mean, you just get these characters that kind of exist and this kind of plot that kind of exists, and even the passionate character of the journalist and the doctor. These two passionate brothers. Um, I think there was more they could have done there. But they kind of they kind of waste them. Yep. I, I feel like they're wasted characters, and I feel like they're they were they were both interesting characters, 
but they they just waste them. I feel like there should have been more scenes between those two guys, and except for you know you get the one scene between them, and I feel like there's more that could have been done there. There's more with the the wife. Uh, some of the torture scenes, uh, you know, some of the torture scenes are pretty rough. Uh, <laughs> pouring hot water down the back of a character is, is 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 sounds awful and stuff. Of course, it would work better if they wouldn't have shot it at the angles they shot it. That's the other thing. This film just doesn't feel as assured by Fujita as the first film does. <clears throat> no, <clears throat> this film no, it feels doesn't. it feels even more rushed, and it feels like which he, I think which I think it was. Yeah, and I feel I feel like he even he picks the wrong angles in this film. There's a few great moments, don't get me wrong, it's, especially that opening and stuff, but like the torture scene when they're beating up the anarchist character, that I, I don't know. I never really felt like that was real torture. It just didn't feel very real to me. You know, like the first one has those great moments of, uh, we didn't bring this up in our notes and stuff, but, or maybe we did, and I overheard it, didn't overhear, I just didn't hear it or whatever, overlooked it when you were talking about it. But what the first film does so great is, you know, it has these little moments of pause to kind of remind you that the, the, the film will freeze for a second. To kind of remind you of how tunnel vision involved her revenge is. Yep. It gives the audience that tunnel vision as well. Where all this other stuff is going on, but every minute, every now and then it'll freeze just on a character in the background. And you think, that's the motherfucker right there. <laughs> where this yeah. one, you never really you never really get that sense of anything. You, you, you know, you, at, at some point, you want to get rid of Sherlock Holmes because he dresses like a fucking idiot and he's a pain in the ass. And another, you know, the S&M Hunter character is ridiculous. <laughs> And you're on the eyebrow. I mean, you get all these great little background characters, but they never really do anything that really makes them stand out as like the heavy in the film. And so you never, like I said before, you never really get motivated enough. It's really a shame because I think the the character designs, so to speak, are there. I think all the nature that we, all the revenge nature we want is there. I just don't think the the plot line is followed through well enough. So. Um, it's a good film. It's just not a. I don't know. I mean, I think once you see, it's a real letdown from the first one. That's what I can say the, the most. It it's, is. It's a good movie. Just not it. When you compare it to part one, it's just really no comparison. But that's all my notes on this one. <clears throat> okay. Um. Um. God, I don't really have a whole lot um, to add. Um. I kind of went through some things as you talked. It kind of comes full circle with her going to prison, which I thought was interesting. I love that pull through the cell when she's uh, kneeling in the jail cell. Yeah. That was really nice. This one has a much brighter color palette. It's very lush. It's very green, um, which is great. Um, What else do we got here? Um, Oh, man, there's one dude in this. He is a sweaty mess. (laughs) Just soaked, man. I was like, forget spaghetti for this is sake sweat. <laughs> sake sweat. <laughs> oh, he's just dripping, man. Nice. I can't remember which which character was that. It was the prof- uh, not the professor. That's the conformist again. I'm thinking of the doctor. Oh, okay. Was okay. the doctor? Yeah, it was a yeah, doctor. Yeah. He was Scholar. a scholar. Yeah. Great rooftop shot of an umbrella in the rain. You know that that shot that kind of pulls along the village, where it's got like a purple kind of uh, umbrella mm-hmm. scr- along mm-hmm. the rooftop. Um, uh, the Japanese saddlebags we talked about. A little bit rudderless. Um, the, this Fulci-esque eye trauma. <laughs> um, the one dude looking, not the, not the, um, the perfect, is that professor doctor? The other dude looked like Donnie Yen, man, with a bad wig on. Yeah, he kind of did, yeah. Um, 
there's an overhead shot in a tiled room that reminded me of like a Jodorowsky type shot at the back end of the film. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like that black and white checkerboard tile. Yeah, this film, the way it's shot, feels very European, very Hitchcock with the camera, which is, uh, I, like I said, I really, you know, you'll hear in a minute what I think of the cinematography. But uh, that's all my stuff. I'll kick it over to you, make or break. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with uh, my make or break is going to have to be, it's a little bit of break. Even though I love that first 12 minutes and some of those shots and, and really that shot on some of the stuff on the beach is some of the best stuff in both films as far as what it looks mm-hmm. like. Um, but I got to go with a little bit of break and I think that's the political intrigue. I kind of know that that's what this is going for and that there's a message here, but I'll be honest with you, I didn't give a shit. And yep. uh, it, if they made me give a shit, then I'd, I'd, it'd be a make. But they didn't make me give a shit, I think, and that it kind of breaks it a little bit. I kind of wanted it to get back to the basic, simple cult film, you know, revenge plot. I think, you know, they, they had a golden goose here, and they laid a regular egg. So <laughs> so that's that's my opinion of it. Uh, my MVT for this one, I'll give it to Kaji, though, because she she is the main thing in this film that I'm most interested in. She's still fun in the movie. She's just not enough of her. Um, mm-hmm. She's still great in the movie, though. Um, her eyes, her acting, just fun. She really carries that weight very well. Um, my score for the film, 6.75 out of 10. Good. Uh, definitely not great, and definitely a letdown compared to part one. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, some people would like this one quite a bit. I don't know if anybody would like this one more than the first one. I'd be interested to hear anybody's opinion on that. Um, but, because I, I would find that hard to believe. But at the same time, you know, you never know. Some people could justify this one a lot more if they're into that kind of stuff, right? So, there's always somebody that's going to, you know, dig something like this. And it just it just didn't work for me. That's all. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm pretty similar to you. Um, my make or break, it's, it didn't break the film per se. Hey, Aldo Lotto just accept, accepted my friend request. Nice. Great. Um, but I just think that the kind of wandering aimlessly through the through the slums and the political backroom stuff. It just, it just wandered aimlessly too much. Mm-hmm. And it takes away from the drive of the film. The film doesn't have a drive. MVT is the cinematography. That's right. What was your score? 6.75. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> uh, my MVT is the cinematography. Like I said, this one was really well shot. There's a lot of shots. Like, wow, man, very nice, very nice. My score for the film is a touch lower than yours. It's a 6.5. Okay. Um... Yeah, you know, like I said before we ever covered the film, it's a good film, not a great film, certainly. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, in the shadow, it looms large. That's a big com- white kimono to fill, baby. And you can't fill it like you did in part one. Uh, you trying to? You can tell it's a rush job. It's like the Hollywood thing of, oh, let's get the sequel out. You know, let's put more bodies and more, 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 more subplots, more, more, more. And uh, that's not how we like it. Not how we like it. So... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. This feels like a, an opportunity missed, you know. It's, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, well, I mean, I was reading recently about uh, Blind Man again. I was reading recently about oh. that, and that that uh, Tony Anthony wishes he would have uh, followed through and made more Blind Man films. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said he would have if if it wasn't for the pain he had to go through with the contacts. Oh, yeah, now, which I think we talked about in our yeah, review. Which nowadays, you know, it would be much easier for him because the contacts are made. For the ass. Back then, it was like they were, they were like these huge hunks of glass. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, 
but he regrets that he didn't make more of those films because you know there's a great character there well that's the same way i kind of feel about this i feel like this is a letdown from the first lady snowblood and i wish there would have been more lady snowblood films i wish there had been a whole series almost like a i wish there would have been like a you know uh a lone wolf and cub series of these films because i think the character's great and if Mm -hmm. you use her as a force of nature you can put her in any situation so i don't know yes again if they had have mapped things out um it would have been better served for it yep exactly all right, so that is our uh, thoughts on Lady Snowblood Two: Love Song of Vengeance. Uh, take what you will from it. Again, the set is the set is good. We should just go over the overall set. The set is good. If you're looking to upgrade, don't know if you're going to get a lot from an upgrade, but uh, it is a really nice steel book with a nice essay on the inside. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it. Uh, I mean, it features prominently in my collection. I'm very happy I have it. So. Uh, I won't, I won't deny that I, you know, I'm not in love with the case and, and still in love with the first film quite a bit. And it is a slight upgrade. I mean, it's not like the greatest transfer, but it's still a slight upgrade. So, yeah, for sure. Take what you want from that. I think, yeah. I think, I think you're pretty much on the same level as I am with that. Yeah, we're picking up what the others putting down. Yeah, I don't know if we got time to go over pleasantries or not. So, um, we don't unfortunately. Check out our usual friends. Um, you know that are all kicking ass. Taking no prisoners in the podcast and blog world. I do want to very quickly mention the feminine critique. I just listened to episode two, their collector and um, collector and body double. Yes, yes. I listened to that one last week. Very nice. Yeah. So um, the only thing I want to say before I forget, in case I forget to mention them, we're do they know up, we're hooking up with them next week, right? That's right. So remind me to mention Levelator to them. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to mix. I'm going to mix everything. To, I'm going to take care of all that. Okay, but just I do. I want to let them know for their own benefit. I meant to message them. I didn't want to just from the point. Hey guys, love uh, later. They, well, they evidently. Well, it's a whole conversation off the air. Yeah, but, but let's remember to talk to them. Yeah, because I love them and I want. I want to. Yeah. So I'm, anyway, I'm going to help them out there. I'm working on good. that with them. Good, good, good. Okay, but, so then that leads very nicely into what we're covering next week. Yes. <laughs> I want to suck your ass. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So next week, uh, let's, uh, well, I'll let you go ahead and mention what. So here's what it is. Next week, we're fe- we're teaming up with the feminine critique. We're going to do a little promotional thing. What we're going to do is we're going to review two films, but we're only going to release we're going to release one film review a- on our feed and one film review on their feed. So if you want to, if you're a regular listener to the GGTMC. We want you to check out the feminine critique because these, these are two of the best ladies out there doing it. Uh, two I, very got to say friends. who they are. It's Emily the Deadly Doll yeah. and it's Christine of Paris Cinema fame, our yes. favorite power couple. Yes. So we want them to, uh, you know, we want more people to listen to the show. So we thought, what a great way to promote it. But you know, by giving you guys a teaser, we'll release part one on the GGTMC feed, and part two will be released on the feminine critique feed. So uh, it's a full show. It's just you'll have to download from two different areas to get it. Might sound a little crazy, but I, I thought this was a good idea to get you know to get them out there because when it comes to and I know this sounds kind of a rough thing to say, but let's, let me let me just say this: I've been in rooms with Christine and with Emily. Those two can talk movies. Oh man, they're they're <laughs> so they these two women know their shit. They can hang with the boys any yeah. day of the week. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know what? The more I, the more I hear Christine critique film i said i wasn't going to spend too much time here we go but christine sounds like the female version of miles to me the way she approaches uh review <laughs> nice 
Nice. Next thing, not know, not as much kind of. When's she going to start doing impressions and? <laughs> not as many, not as many baby Leno impressions, but she is very much to me. She the way she um, breaks down film uh, yeah. is like a, as a milius. So. Yeah, it's very milius like. Yes, you're right. Um, so that, that's the way the show is going to go, and uh, I'll let you just tell them what uh, you picked. Uh, for us to cover, which yeah. we, what we tried to do is we tried to give a we tried to pick a film that was very because it's two females reviewing films and they call themselves a feminine critique. We tried to pick something that was very macho, very Boy, macho, very much a dude movie that dudes love because dudes you know want to fuck each other in the movie, that yep. kind of thing. So what would you pick? Well, we're going to be reviewing shirtless. The ladies don't have to. Um, we're going to be doing a film that's been really buzzing, man, around the com- around the community. Chris Davies Rowan, good old Davey McLemore. I've been promoting the hell out of it. They've been pounding the pavement for months. And I saw it about a few months ago, and you're a big fan of it. We're going to be reviewing Jim Brown and Rod Taylor and one of the best bromances of all time, Dark of the Sun. Yes. Fucking amazing, <laughs> yes. amazing film. There'll, there'll and, be lots uh, of talk of lots of sweat. Oh, man, it's going to be amazing. And then the ladies picked a film I've never actually seen. Yes, yes. I'll, I'll be interested to hear your take on this film. Which is? Uh, it is, uh, I think it's Sidney Pollack. I think it's his film. I think uh, so, yeah. Uh, they Shoot Horses, Don't They? Mm-hmm. Which is a film essentially about uh, these old school all night dance marathons, dance contest where you dance until you know you drop. Uh, I think Gig Young won a, an Oscar for that film. Uh, Gig Young, so it'll be the second Gig Young appearance on our show. Yeah, how about that? So. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting conversation, nonetheless. But uh, that is the game plan. That is what we're doing next week. Now, let me just say because our next three weeks are crazy. If it falls through, you'll get that sometime in the next three weeks. Hopefully, it will. It'll go through. Seems like everything's set up to do so. But we're talking about again time zones. Uh, <laughs> you know, the different times people waking up, different times people doing things. So. You know, we'll see. But we got some other stuff lined up in case if it doesn't happen. So if you get something different next week, don't be surprised. But I think we're—I think it's pretty much a go. Mm-hmm. So we should be good to go. So look forward to that. And we'll be, we'll be releasing They Shoot Horses, Don't They, on this feed. Nice. And we'll be releasing, well and we'll be releasing Dark of the Sun on the Feminine Critique feed. So Very nice. We're doing this all uh, on purpose. Again, it's cross-promotional. These two have supported us for a long time. And it's only right that we should support them. And they're new and they're up and coming. And I know a lot of you guys listen to them already anyway, but yep. we want to get some more people to listen to them because trust me, it's one of the best new shows out there. So It's really good. I'm not just saying that because I love them. These two women know their film. They pick interesting films. Um, I, I can't wait to do this, man. This is going to be very, very cool. We've wanted to get these dames. I know Emily's been on with me to review Near Dark, but it's going to be nice to get these two dames on the GGTMC because they're as GGTMC as ladies can be. Yes, yes. All right, so that is the big show next week, and that is the big show this week. So with that, I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 